I borrowed that uh, subtitle from Captivity to Covenant. It's not original to me. You can Google search it and find it all over the place. But it does, it does uh, I think, capture huh, the, uh, the essence of, a bit of, of Exodus, but not all of it. We could go from, from bondage to blessing. or We could go from old creation to new creation. There's as much creation overtones and echoes in Exodus uh, perhaps even as there is in Genesis. You may have encountered or seen a, a certain worldview uh, or theology out there. Perhaps we might say bumper sticker theology or Instagram worldview or something of that nature these days. Uh, but it's something like this, that uh, well-behaved women rarely make history or seldom make history. And think, well, there's an element of, of truth in that, isn't it? But it depends a little bit upon what history you're reading. And it depends a little bit upon um, whose behavior you're comparing. When we come to Exodus 1 and 2, we have a substantial listing of women who do not behave well according to Pharaoh's standards. In fact, Pharaoh is so concerned about Israel becoming strong and powerful through the raising of the male children into an army, he overlooks where that strength actually would come from, and that is from the women, and particularly the mothers. So we have the two midwives in chapter 1 that defy Pharaoh, and now we're going to have uh, several other women, two, three in particular, that will defy Pharaoh. And one of them is from Pharaoh's own household. Can you imagine? I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, we're we're going to look at this. And um, there's a threefold uh, outlay of Moses' life now in chapter 2. We have a, a birth narrative, an infancy narrative. We have a, a midlife crisis narrative uh, in Moses. Uh, and then we have an exile uh, Midianite experience in the life of Moses. And uh, based on our experience last week, we're just going to do 10 verses this week. Sound good? No amen. So that's okay. That's, that's all right. Good. There are some things you should amen, and other things it's okay to just pass over. That's good. Um, we're going to look at this in five different, different kind of movements, just a couple of verses at a time. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 2, we're going to see first the birth narrative, and we're going to see how... Faith is displayed in this pericope. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took a, as his wife a, a Levite woman from the same tribe. Uh, we don't, we're not given their names. Don't know who they are until chapter 6 of Exodus. Then finally, Moses decides to tell the genealogy uh, of Moses and Aaron. And we, we find that they're um, kind of a different kind of relationship. That uh, uh, Well, let's just go there because I didn't write the names down on my sheet. Um, I'm not going to find it. Jochebed is his mom's name, and I forget his dad's name. Uh, say it for me. Ammon? There it is. Amram. Amram married his aunt. Yeah. Well, we, we'll worry about that when we get to Exodus 6. At this point, you know, the, the, the genealogies, the, the biology of life is, is pretty, pretty decent, pretty good. So it's working. 
We'll, we'll cover it, I suppose, when we get to Exodus 6. But that's kind of the nature of the relationship. They're in the, the Levitical uh, tribe. And they marry. You know, think of this. In the midst of all this bondage, persecution, slavery, there's still life going on. Still uh, marriages happening. And we'd like to suppose and read back that there's some love involved here. Uh, some romantic notions involved here. Well, whatever the case, they, they bear a son. There, there goes the order of worship. So they bear a son, but I need to take this off the communion table or that's going to bother me. I don't like to put too much on the communion table that doesn't belong there except communion stuff. So, faith conceiving. Now, they don't tell us right in this spot, but there's another son, Aaron, and a girl whom we'll be introduced to, not by name yet, but we'll find out in Exodus 15, her name is Miriam. Uh, they have a third child in the midst of, of all these tensions, political policies and so forth. They are going about life normally, going about life really by faith. They have this child and, and uh, mom sees that uh, he's a fine child, the ESV says. Others might say beautiful child, as we read in Acts chapter 7, or good, really is the word, tov, good. He's a good kid, a good child. I, I don't know that it might mean he looked healthy, but then again, to, to nearly every mother who has a baby, it's a good child. Oh, what a beautiful child. They all look beautiful to the mom. I, I, you know, in, in the Exodus account, we're, we're not really told what tov means, exactly what kind of good is this. But we're given a sense, well, we remember the word good was used over and again in Genesis account. The creation was good, and God made these things good, and He gave them as gifts to Adam and Eve to be stewards over. And we're, we suspect we're reminded of this, that here this child is a good child, and he's a gift from God, and you, mom and dad, are to be stewards of this life that's been handed to you. Life is good. Children are good. And God is good and He gives good gifts. Indeed, they are a stewardship. And they raise this child in the fear of the Lord. They fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. For three months, they try hiding this baby boy. Now, I suppose in the, the early days, it's not that difficult. They're a relatively small package. You can kind of hide them anywhere. Um, they're not overly noisy. I know when you're like your first-time parent and you're, you're out and about and your baby in the car carrier starts crying, it sounds like it's like it's huge megaphone. And the people next to you are like, oh, what a cute little baby. And he says, it's really quite quiet. Now, as the baby gets to be three months old, that cry becomes a little bit more, more boisterous. Uh, although Aaron is only three years older, so you maybe could pass by the cry of a, of a three-month-old, a two-month-old off as toddler Aaron, you know, making noise and crying. Whatever, whatever, they're able to hide him for three months, but at three months it's getting a little bit more challenging but they're raising this child in the fear of God rather than in the fear of Pharaoh. 
the, I suppose, technical thing to do would be to expose this child to the river, as was told in Exodus chapter 1, throw him into the Nile to the river god, Exodus 1.22. Hapi would be the river god of the Nile. And it's uh, likely that, he, that uh, Pharaoh in, 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 intends this to be a kind of sacrificial offering to placate uh, the god of fertility. Throw, throw the babies there as an offering. Well, these two parents are not going to do that. But, and we think, well, they're hiding it and they're living by faith. But, you know, any, any act of being a parent is living by faith. Uh, even coming together and getting married in the first place is an act of faith. Coming together and, and conceiving a child in itself is an act of faith. It's more theological than it is biological. Asking the Lord. Providing for diapers and all these things. It's an act of faith. Entrusting them to a future. And it's children that are raised by faith and not fear that will flourish. Uh, well, it gets to be difficult. So, mom, verse 3, she could hide him no longer. And she took for him a basket made of, it says bulrushes here, technically would be papyrus reeds, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it uh, among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So they obey the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. You notice? I mean, mom and dad actually do what the law said to do. Put your baby in the river. There's a satire here in the telling of the story. There's an irony in the telling of the story. It's like there's always way around some law or legality. And, and mom and dad find one. Now, there's other stories in those ancient literatures um, about babies being put in baskets. You know, there's the ancient story of Sargon who's put in a basket. And, oh, there's a more contemporary story called Willow. And the baby's put in a basket floating down the river. You know, it's, it's a common kind of story. Now, the, the secularists or the cynics of the, of the Scriptures will say, well, see, Moses, it wasn't even Moses, but the author borrowed uh, from that story of Sargon. It's not a real story. Right? Well, we can debate who borrowed from who. Um, I mean, the, the time of the Exodus itself is you know, around 1446 B.C. Uh, but this is just this. I think when we read the literature, what we find out is that this was a common practice. The ancient world would expose infants, get rid of infants, by simply setting them in the river. And a caring mother or two here would put them on a flotilla instead. Now these kind of baskets you can actually find, they tell me, all throughout Egypt yet today. And they, they look like little miniatures of, of 
ferry boats and ferry rafts that would go up and down the Nile. She just makes a little miniature, almost, I suppose, could look like a toy floating down the river. And we're thinking, you know, as, as North Americans, we're thinking, wow, crocodiles? Well, it could be. But in the Delta area, there really doesn't seem to be much history of, of crocodiles in that particular area, if that's where it was. Not every place had crocodiles, just to say. They obeyed the letter of the law. They put the child in the river, but in a basket first. They're going to commit their child to the devouring mouth of the river god, the Nile, Hopi. But they're going to find out that there is a more powerful god. New Testament puts it this way, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. That is the enemy of the devil. For God is in you, and He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. The world has its gods. The world has its esteemed powers and authorities of which they tell us all to bow and submit. But there is a God over all gods. There is a one true living God. A God of life and not a God of death. And a God who indwells every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to overcome sin and death. Well, this mother places her baby down in the basket and one commentator puts it quite poignantly, tucking her heart inside the basket as she tucks in her baby. Hmm. Mother loves her son. She's entrusting that baby to her Lord in the basket. Having received her son as a gift from the Lord, now she has to truly put him in the Lord's hands and let him go. This is difficult. This is challenging. And this isn't the first time that she will need to do so. But she puts him in a basket. This is a unique word, tevna. It's a work that uh, a word that means ark, if we're going to really translate it. And it's a word that's used here and in Genesis about the ark that Noah built. Those are the only two places where this word is used. Tev, riding the ark. A vessel of salvation through the waters of chaos. This, this act of recreation, this act of new creation, is powerful. Indeed, God judged... Uh, the earth by the waters of the flood in Genesis 6-9. to But indeed, He brought the earth out of the chaos of the waters, Genesis 1. He put a rainbow in the sky, a bow, an upturned bow. Think of a bow and an arrow kind of bow. An upturned bow. God made a promise. I will no longer, I will never again shoot an arrow of flood down upon the earth. His bow is up in peace. And the bow in the sky is a 
covenant sign that God will ever be faithful. God will ever keep His promise. I don't know how we'll reclaim that symbol of covenant love of God, but God help us someday we will. Now, this going through the water is a picture of the new creation. And it's a picture very personal. It is for the New Testament believer as well. Peter would put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. In the days of Noah, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah and his family, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That water baptism that we practice here as as believers is a symbol of God's recreative, new creation work. And it says it's not simply the outward thing you need to be too concerned about. It's not about the removal of dirt from the body. He says it's really about a pledge. It's an appeal. It's, a, it's an act of the will of conscious and of conscience before God. That God raised Jesus from the dead. Did not Jesus call His own death a baptism in the Gospel of Mark? Yeah. Coming through the waters is a a recreation. A new creation. Moses is brought from death back unto life. Now, if you ever have an opportunity to talk about Christian things with someone of Jewish background and they, they question the reality of a resurrection, particularly that of Jesus as the Messiah, well, you can point to places like Moses who is a picture, a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection as Joseph was in the end of Genesis. There are pictures anticipating the reality in Christ. Well, here comes, here comes the bath, verses 5-6. to six. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So There's wall paintings in old Egyptian places of, of royalty, princesses, uh, going to the, the river. And here it's called the river because that's, that's the name of the Nile. The ancient name of the Nile is the river. It's, it's the one in all the world. It's, it, it, it's the Nile. And the Nile was... Um, well, you know, the waters would rise and then they would... They would go away, ascend and descend. I don't remember the technical words. And when they, when they come in and bring flooding, they, they bring this rich soil for planting. And uh, it, it's there, and then when the waters recede, 
this lush agricultural world is alive. And so you have, you have Hopi, who is the, the god of the Nile and the god of fertility. And you would, in different seasons of the year, go and, and celebrate his goodness to you in bringing the lushness of the earth. Well, the princess goes for this. And there is spotted amongst the reeds a, a basket. Go get that basket. She opens the basket. Of course, the baby's crying before they even open. Babies cry. I suspect even Jesus in the manger was, had some cries. Babies do that. Part of the way God engineered it. Right? They're building lung capacity. It's good. But whether Moses is scared or lonely, he's safe. And never safer. As the Lord is watching over him. Now the Lord's not mentioned in this chapter. We're familiar with this kind of narrative as we went through the story of Esther where the Lord isn't mentioned by name but you see His hand engineering all behind the scenes. This, uh, this princess goes. She's probably there, I suspect, for some kind of, of pagan worship, fertility worship, fertility rites. But isn't it interesting that, that God can and does break into wherever He wants to? He'll, he'll break into any cultural norm or scenario and wake someone up. To, he, he, he's not limited by anyone to accomplish His purpose. Well, here's the princess. How does she know this is one of the Hebrew children? Well, guess. What other baby would be in the water? That's the policy. It's the government policy. She knows. Of course, if she realizes this is a boy, uh, maybe he's been circumcised. Um, and, you know, good old uh, was Cecil B. DeMille. That telling of the story. She sees the cloth, the Hebrew cloth. Well, this has got to be one of the Hebrew boys. She knows precisely how we got there and what's going on and what's happening. But God is working. Even in the midst of her own misguided pursuits and worldview. But it's a reminder to us that salvation is for the whole world. And it's even for the Egyptians. Later, later in this Exodus narrative, many Egyptians will leave with the Israelites, to worship Yahweh in the wilderness. Yeah. Isaiah brings the prophecy that, yes, even Egypt will be blessed when the Messiah reigns on the earth. They will be blessed and they will come to worship the Lord at the mount. Salvation is for the world. These common graces working in the life of the princess, 
we would probably go too far to say that she's saved, but there's a common grace working in her life. There's this maternal instinct that God instilled in her and, and is welling up to bring compassion upon an exposed infant. God is good. When we see those measures of goodness in places we wouldn't expect, it is a gift of God's common grace to the world that He has preserved until, until the day of Christ. And until that day of Christ, the, every man, woman, and child is given time. Time to repent. To bow to the God of creation. And the God of redemption. Now, saving children from the waters is a, a prominent reality in history. Ancient history, medieval history. Uh, the early church in the Roman Empire saved many children from exposure. Sometimes infants would be thrown into the river, thrown over bridges. I remember reading one narrative of Christians in boats in the river grabbing the babies out of the water. But very often these babies would, unwanted babies, uh, either for economic reasons or because there was some supposed deformity or weakness evident in the birthing of the child, would be set upon the dung heap or the ash heap or the, the junk pile. And the Christians would go and gather them in, adopting them as their own, creating homes. Uh, it was in the Middle Ages that the... Uh, there was a, a wheel device installed in the front of church buildings. Uh, you would pull it down and it would rotate open and you could put a little child in there and it would rotate back up and then the nuns within uh, the church building or the nunnery or the monastery would then care for the baby. I think it's, I think it's Malaysia and uh, was it Sweden or Switzerland? They, in, in those nations, they have similar compartments in which to put unwanted babies. Uh, they're modernized now. There's a little sensor in there that when the weight goes onto the sensor, the, a little classical music plays and a little heater underneath the blanket warms up the baby. This is the world that knows how to do this. What are we doing? What are we doing? The princess knows how to do this. The Egyptian woman. What are the people of God? Well, we have a hope. Here's a family. And we suspect this isn't the only attempt to save a child. But this is the narrative that we have in God giving us hope in the story of redeeming an entire people. Well, now we'll come to the babysitter. 
faith asking, verses 7 to 9. His sister, that is the baby's sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? Now, there is a precocious little girl. There's a courageous little girl. There's big sister watching to see where this little flotilla goes and what happens. And there's the princess doing her ritual bathe. and Maybe she's in the water, maybe not, but here comes big sister. Now, the princess is wise enough, shrewd enough to know this is a Hebrew baby. I, I, you suspect she knows this is his sister? You suspect she knows she's going to go get mommy? Probably. It, it, wouldn't, it doesn't take much to figure that out, to assume, especially if you're Egyptian. You know what's going on. You know the plan. You know the policy. You know how it's supposed to go. But there's courage in this little girl. We don't know her exact age, but she's not alone in the biblical narrative. Uh, do you remember maybe this general Naaman? Naaman was a Syrian general and uh, tremendous in battle. But he has skin disease, a leprosy. On one of his exploits, he captured uh, an Israelite girl, a slave girl. And she tells Naaman, if you only knew my prophet, the prophet of my people, he could heal you, this little girl. And of course, he finally listens to her and he goes. Think about the, the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish in John chapter 6. Or the story, as is told in the Sunday school songs, only a boy named David... Or Rhoda, Acts chapter 12. Rhoda, Rhoda is this, it's called a servant girl. And uh, Peter is released from jail and he shows up knocking on the door. And this little girl, or servant girl, I should say, I don't exactly know her age, but it does say servant girl. And she opens the door and surprised to greet and meet the apostle for whom they've just been praying. Or uh, Paul's nephew, Acts chapter 23. Again, we don't know his exact age, but the centurion takes a hold of his hand and walks with him to hear the message that this, this boy, Paul's sister's son, has to share that there's a, there's a plot to assassinate Paul. Boys and girls serving the Lord. Boys and girls with a, a courageous, precocious faith in God who can do wonders. 
They haven't in times lived long enough to be afraid like we are when we're bigger and older. That's a generalization, of course. But here is a faith that's asking. And all the evidence would strike against the princess affirming the request. But she does. Go. Go. And I imagine Miriam running off home to get her mother, baby's mother, and the princess watching and smiling, knowing that the infant's mother is coming. I'm using sanctified imagination there. I think you understand. But I want to give the princess a little more credit than maybe we often might. Do you notice her generosity? Go. Verse 8. So the girl went. And called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. What? I thought the Israelites were slaves. Right? You, you don't pay slaves. You see the generosity of the princess? She's not only giving the baby to his mother, she's now paying the mother to be his mother and thus providing for the household in times that are really difficult and lean. God is providing for His Redeemer. God is providing for the Savior that He will raise up among His people. This isn't probably a, a promise or a blessing that we should all assume for ourselves. But we can see that God is directly providing and protecting His servant to redeem His people. And there's nothing that can thwart God's plan. Indeed, everything must fit His purpose for His salvation. And it does. Moses is saved and preserved to be the Redeemer of God's people in the Old Covenant. Verse 9 to 10, go on. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses gets not only life, but he gets life in his parents' household. Oftentimes, children would be nursed for at least three years. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a kind of a party celebration when each of our five were weaned. Praise the Lord! But that's usually, you know, about a year. Can you imagine three? 
But in the Egyptian royal system, the princes would often not go to educational, start their education until about six to nine years of age. Whoa. Now again, the milk is important because most of the water around isn't potable. It isn't drinkable. Particularly if you're in a slave environment and situation away from the fresh water. Food's hard to come by. But a mother's milk is extremely nourishing. Moses is cared for in all these practicalities. But more than that, he has the opportunity to learn about who he is. To learn about his mom and his dad, his heritage, and indeed the God of his father and mother. He is trained in the ways of the Lord. In chapter 3 and verse 6, it mentions that this is the God of your father. A wake-up call for, oh, the God of my father. Okay, this is the Lord. Moses was given in those early years a foundation of biblical truth and biblical faith. In these days, it was passed on orally. And Moses is the recipient of that. We have a similar kind of setting in, for the life of Timothy in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, we have two references to Timothy's upbringing and nurture in the faith. His dad uh, took him to the gymnasium. The, the Greek-Roman place of education where good Roman stock were raised. But his mother and his grandmother. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Then later in chapter 3 of the same letter, 2 Timothy, verse 14, Paul says, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the word Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Lois and Eunice passed on the scriptural doctrines and teachings to little Timothy. And Paul had the opportunity to, to see that come to flourish in the life of Timothy. We can do all within our might and power to nurture the material well-being of our children. We can do all to instill with them a, a character, a work ethic, a diligence. And those are good, important. But we fall, fall short if we don't instill in them the Scriptures 
that are able to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. This is our most important duty. Not that the others aren't important. But this is the most important. A survey was done, oh, years ago now. And amongst evangelical Christians, they were asked, what are, what are the top goals for your children? A good education and a good job. And later on down the list was faith. Is it a challenge for us to come to grips with that? Well, we must be diligent. And God provided the opportunity for His servant Moses to at least be given the fundamentals, the the foundations of the faith. Is he a believer? Not yet. And he won't be. He won't be for at least another 40 years. Be patient. Parents, be patient. The story's not over, as one of our friends used to say. God's still working. And we need to still be faithful to offer them back to the Lord. And mom has to do that again here, doesn't she? She offered him once. And the Lord brought him back. And now she offers him again. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. Sending your baby off to school. Boarding school in this case. And off he goes. The mother relinquished her son to be brought up in the world. The royal palace. Now, it was a good education. And we had a hint of this in, in Stephen's speech at Acts chapter 7, verse 22, which we read, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. I mean, there's great education there. I mean, the... The Israelites did not build the pyramids. They were already there hundreds of years before the Israelites. That's that's how well civilized and educated the Egyptian empire is at this time. And Moses is the benefactor of the benefit of all that education. Indeed, he would have the qualifications to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, the princess takes him and formally names him. She, she publicly adopts him as her own. Like he's legally in the line of the royal palace. And she names him Moses. It's probably a, a combination, a conflation of both Egyptian and Hebrew. And you'll see the word Moses in a number of Egyptian names. You probably just scan right over it quickly. Tutmosis. Moses. Take the tut off the front and what do you see? Moses. Ahmos. Ah. A-H. Mose. M-O-S-E. 
Son of the Spirit. Uh, Ramesses. Ra. Messes. Moses. Son of Ra. Moses. Like, he just appeared out of the water. Can God make something out of nothing? He does. Does He bring life out of death? He does. Moses. Now, there's no direct mention of God in the narrative. There's no direct mention of faith. But that's what we've seen through all of this. It's like how Earl prayed for us earlier in the service. In the, the normal doings of life, day by day, moment by moment, recognizing the presence and the providence of God in every waking moment, in every breath-taking moment. God has not forsaken His people. He is divinely ruling. And His hand of providence is over the circumstances. And the narrative of oppression and disaster is is broken by the birth of one child who will be the Savior of God's people. Now the, shall we say, greater Moses has come. The, the Messiah, the Son of God, has come. To live and die in the place of sinners. But to be raised to life on the third day. To bring in a new creation of life and light, of liberty, for all that would yield their lives to Him and trust Him, faith, believing, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you have life in His name. So, Father, we come and ask that You deed would, would do Your work among us. May Your Spirit move and bring life out of death and make something out of nothing. Where there is no faith, would You instill faith? Where there is no life, would You bring regeneration? Where there is guilt and shame, would You bring justification and honor and forgiveness? Do that work in us. And give us trust in Your hand that as we raise children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews, great-grandchildren, we would offer them to You this day, this moment. And ask You, God, to write their story. Guide and direct them into Your history for Your purpose. Redirect their lives in whatever river rage they're swept away in. Put Your hand upon them. Protect and provide for their salvation. And return them to your household 
a lost sheep found. The prodigal returned. The lost saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.